Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Thank you for joining the conversation on Colloquium. This episode is brought to you by Excelsior Capital, an investment platform focused on democratizing private equity by providing individuals access to direct opportunities. To learn more about the firm, please visit excelsiorgp.com and connect with Brian on LinkedIn. Hello and welcome to the conversation on Colloquium. Today I've got Adam Rosenswag with me, who I'm very excited about. I got turned on to your newsletter from an oil and gas friend of mine, and I've really enjoyed your commentary. We'll talk about this at the end of the conversation, but I, I really encourage people listening to this to check out his um, blogs and newsletters, and you do some video commentary as well. Um, it's very good. and oftentimes contrarian to what you see in the journal, the times or the economist, for instance. So very good for you to sharpen up your thoughts in this space. But before we get into it, Adam, could you give a little bit of background on yourself and, and the firm? Sure thing. And th thanks so much for having me today. Excited to be here. So my partner, Lee and I were natural resource investors. Uh, we tend to invest in the public securities of natural resource related companies. So oil and gas companies, drilling companies, mining companies, agricultural commodities, and things of that nature. Uh, my partner, Lee, has been doing this for 30 years. He started in 1991 at Prudential, and he managed all of their resource funds for the next 15 years, built them into multi-billion dollar funds and with an excellent, excellent track record. And in 2005, he left and started a brand new product at a firm called Chilton Investment Company here in New York, and built that to be a $5 billion natural resource equities fund. And I joined him there in 2007, and we've been working, uh, been working for him as his junior analyst and now with him uh, ever since. In 2016, we left. We started our own firm, Gehring and Rosenzweig, carrying on a lot of the same traditions, uh, but trying to offer a product um, you know, 
back to a sort of long only, low cost. We have a mutual fund in the US. We have separate accounts for international investors. Uh, just to be a very straightforward vehicle for people to try and get natural resource exposure. And like you said, we try to be contrarian. We try to be value. And we were so contrarian that we did this in 2017 when absolutely nobody had any interest in natural resources whatsoever. So that's the other thing we tend to be. We tend to be early to a lot of things. Um, sometimes we're wrong, but more often than not, we're early. So uh, we've been sort of managing the portfolio and doing our research uh, ever since. We have about $220 million under management today. Uh, and you know, I think we're starting to see a, a fundamental change in investors' attitudes and outlooks to the resources space after what has been a, a pretty brutal 10-year bear market. So that, that's who we are. We like to do a lot of fundamental research. We're very proud of our research. And one thing we do that, that maybe is a little bit different than some of our, our peers is we try to put everything we do into the public domain, uh, all of our research. Uh, like you said, we do podcasts like this one. We do some videos of our own uh, and a lot of uh, written research four times a year. We put out a big quarterly letter and we have all of our old historical ones on there too. So people can see you know, what we have been saying and how that's changed over time. Yeah, absolutely. So let's get right into it. I want to hear your impressions on the oil market. Take me to, you know, when the pandemic initially started, there were some quirks in the system. I don't know. You can tell me the specifics, but for a period of time, oil was technically trading negative based on, I guess, futures contracts. And if you could talk to me about what that period looked like for you and your portfolio and what the conversations were going on inside the walls of your firm. And then talk me through kind of what's happened since then up until today. We're in you know, September of, of 2021 now. Okay. Um, I'll, I'll start even earlier than that. How about that? I'll start all the way back in 2010. <laughs> but but, but that works. I'll, I'll, I'll fast forward quite a bit of it. So yeah. look, from 2010, yeah, that's when the U.S. really started to exploit the shale uh, oil basins. Before that, we had figured out how to create or how to produce uh, gas, natural gas from shales. Uh, but natural gas is a much shorter, smaller molecule, and it's a gas. So it's easier to flow through the tight shale rock than oil. And there's always been open debate as to whether or not you could actually even produce oil uh, from the shales. And the first major basin to do that was the Bakken in North Dakota. And actually, if you look, you know, we were major shale gas investors and we missed the Bakken. We did not invest in it because we said it's really too uncertain whether you can actually flow these long hydrocarbon chains through such tight rock. Uh, it turned out that you could. And, you know, we've been shale oil investors uh, ever since, and particularly in the Permian, where we saw that the uh, economic potential there was extreme and we got very involved there. And so from 2010 to 2019, the shales grew prolifically. Uh, and in fact, if you look in the whole non-OPEC world, they were the only source of growth. In fact, in certain years, they were more than the only source of growth, meaning that non-OPEC supply outside of the US fell. Uh, and, and over the 10 year period, it was, it was flat. So you had demand on a global basis growing quite a bit. You had US production because of the shales growing quite a bit, and you had non-OPEC production outside of the US falling. Um, so that resulted in a situation where you know, there, there's sort of this feeling that, that the shale was crowding out OPEC oil. That never actually really happened. In fact, OPEC increased production over the 10-year period. Uh, maybe on a percent basis, you know, it was, it was uh, the same barrels, but you know, smaller percent of the total. The US was providing all the incremental growth. And what started to happen in 2019 was this amazing resource, the shales, uh, was starting to show its first signs of age. 
And there had been a bit of a misconception amongst investors. People sort of viewed the shales in the United States as, as almost uh, limitless because they really had grown more um, aggressively than, than almost anything up until you know going all the way back to the major Middle Eastern discoveries in the 50s and stuff like that. That's how prolific and game-changing they were. But we pulled on them awfully hard. And by 2019, you were starting to actually see some degradation in the quality uh, of the wells that you were drilling and growth we felt might actually begin to peter out. We didn't think it would roll over just yet, but we thought that growth would be much harder to come by. We thought the Bakken in North Dakota would roll over, the Eagleford in East Texas would roll over, and the Permian in West Texas would be the only shale growing. So we said, I think at one point we, we coined it as we said, you know, all of global oil demand growth is being met by seven counties in West Texas. You know, it's an awfully narrow uh, you know, supply base. And then COVID happened. So even at the end of 2019, and people really forget this, but by the end of 2019, the shales had stopped growing. You had three or four sequential months, November, December, January, February, I think of 2019 and 20, uh, where shale production in the US was, was flat to down, total shale production, even including the Permian. And we said, this is a game changer, and this is really gonna tighten balances in 2020. And then COVID happened. And COVID had these massive implications, as you can well imagine, and people kind of forget now, I think, you know, people think of movie theaters and cruise ships as the biggest impacted industries of COVID. But at the beginning, it was the oil industry. Nothing else was even, you know, came close. And demand fell precipitously, although nobody could even really know or measure how much demand had fallen because it was happening so fast and it was so severe. And, you know, models couldn't be relied upon and what have you. Companies laid down rigs in a hurry. You know, they laid down ultimately 80% of the rigs drilling for new wells. Almost no new wells got drilled other than what was contractually on the backlog. It'd be more expensive to not drill it than it was to drill it. Uh, and inventory started to swell because even though you weren't drilling new wells, you had all this production and demand just fell off a cliff. Inventories began to bloat and bloat and bloat. And there became the risk by March and April of 2020 that going forward into May, you would fill inventories. Now, We've never filled inventories before. That's not something, you know, the oil market does not balance, strictly speaking, on a day-to-day -day basis. There's seasonalities, two quarters we draw uh, inventories, two quarters we build. You know, inventories are an important part of the global oil system. And if you hit full inventories, you basically work where supply and demand has to clear every day. It's a just-in-time inventory situation, if you will, because you can't rely upon storage to fill. And, and that had seriously never been never been contemplated, let alone uh, experienced. And so there's a bit of a misconception that storage did fill. It actually didn't, but people that had remaining spare capacity held it off the market because they felt that they could just get a king's ransom down the road uh, to be that last barrel of capacity. Because literally, you know, what do you do with oil coming up out of the ground uh, if you can't put it anywhere, you can't put it in the pipes. And so because of that, and, and I'll make a Quick correction, it wasn't, it, the futures price, I, I'm not sure went negative too many months out, but it was actually the spot price. So actually, if you had a barrel today, the futures price sort of said, we'll figure this out down the road. But the spot price, if you actually had a barrel on your hands, it was a liability because you didn't know where to put it. Uh, you couldn't, you know, you can't flare, like you flare natural gas a little bit, that's very frowned upon, you know, can't burn the oil. Um, you know, what are you gonna do with it? And so you actually had to deliver your barrel of oil and cash to incentivize someone to take it off your hands. Um, and so that, that, that was the sort of bottom uh, of, of that market in, in March and April. The other thing that happened at that same time was that OPEC and, and what's known as OPEC plus, which is OPEC plus Russia, Mexico, a couple other countries, 
uh, got together and, and discussed an emergency cut, you know, because they said this is this crazy uh, world and we can respond faster the way some of their geological fields work. They can shut in production maybe a little bit faster. They can work coordinated. Let's, let's slash production to avert disaster. And there was disagreement between Russia and Saudi Arabia. And so Saudi Arabia got so incised and so upset that Russia wasn't towing the line and agreeing to cut production that they said, fine, if you don't cut production, we're going to grow production. You know, because they had been holding barrels off the market, they said, we're going to actually increase production into this mess, and you know that's what that's what really put in the bottom of of, of the uh, oil price. So what did we do? Uh, you know, we looked at this and we looked particularly at the rig count that was falling precipitously, and we said, look, demand here we think is going to come back as soon as the COVID. Uh, impacts are, are lifted and restrictions are lifted. You know, there was some talk that 2019, in retrospect, would be the all-time peak high for oil demand. You know, there, there's a refrain that I've heard a lot that said, you know, COVID didn't create any dynamics; they just accelerated the trends already in place. And so, because of that, you never get back. We never believed that. And in fact, just yesterday on Bloomberg, there was an article saying, you know, demand surpassing old highs in countries where COVID has basically been tamed. That that's my impression too. You know, as soon as we get back to normal, our energy usage and our oil usage is going to be back to normal too. Um, you know, and, and I should point out, by the way, that demand is surpassing old highs, even though air travel is still far off of its old peak. So I think you could actually, you know, you'll be back in a growth scenario. So you said, okay, you have this growth scenario, you've laid down all these rigs, you didn't have a particularly rosy picture based on those four months at the end of 19, beginning of 20, going into all this. So looking out past COVID, we see an incredibly tight oil market that actually could whipsaw back much, 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 much faster. So we, in April of 2020, uh, doubled our oil and gas exposure. Uh, we started the year at about 40% of the portfolio. It got down to as low as 20% because the stocks were such poor performers. Uh, and we doubled that to about 45% of the portfolio, uh, right at the very, very bottom. So I don't know, you know, I don't know, obviously, what every investor did. I don't know many people that did that. Uh, but, but when we looked at the um, when we looked at the balances and how we thought things would go, we said, look, inventories are extremely high, but they're going to start to draw down because we will, as of April and May, we were running a deficit day to day. Right? So a bit of a strange dynamic. You have this huge surplus in your stock figure, but a pretty big deficit in your flow figure. And so we'll work off that overhang fairly quickly. And sure enough, we said, you know, middle of 2021, we will actually not have any excess storage stocks. And we don't. We're now below the five and 10 year averages, both on a global basis and in the US. And that's accelerating. And we're in a very, very tight oil market. And, and how are you gaining that exposure? Are these through you know, traditional multinational names, oil and gas royalty plays? You know, I'm not asking for your exact portfolio positioning, but you know, so how prefer, are you attacking space? Yeah, so we prefer uh, the E&P companies. We in, we prefer the sort of independent exploration production companies with high quality remaining shale assets. And, and we do get a question a lot. People say, well, part of your bullish thesis is predicated on the idea that the crown jewel asset, the Permian, is, is starting to show its age. So when, how do you play that? Say, oh, invest in the Permian. So that's a bit strange. Uh, but there are a few companies left, I would say, probably of the investable universe, 10% meet our criteria. Uh, and, and they do have the remaining high quality inventory. And so, um, you know, I think as people begin to you know, think about the world as potentially um, supply constrained in oil, uh, those companies that have the remaining high quality assets will, will 
be interesting. We saw the same thing in copper, right? You know, copper has a supply story in it too, where there's not a lot of new copper supply coming and old mines are depleting. So, well, great, how do you play it? Well, we invest in copper mining companies. Well, how does that work? There are a few, you know, out of the universe, there's probably five or six that, that you know, do have uh, the best assets and should experience, you know, the best um, exposure to a rising copper price environment. And that's how we like to play it. So we do the same. Uh, we also have a couple offshore drilling stocks. Uh, the offshore drilling space has just been, you know, an unbelievable uh, dramatic ride, including a lot of bankruptcies. Um, we got out of most of our positions before the bankruptcies, although I don't want to suggest that we, you know, traded them very well. We got out of them sort of just before their bankruptcies. We, we took a couple through bankruptcy uh, and, and participated in the restructuring. Uh, but now, you know, a lot of the balance sheets have been repaired. Um, a lot of the debt loads have been, you know, written off. And these sort of new post-emergence companies look like they could benefit, particularly if you know the shales start to suffer. Um, I think you're going to start to see people pay more attention to the offshore, which was the other source of growth before shales. We don't like the large multinational integrated companies. And now our main reason for not liking them is the activism that we're starting to see in that space. And so, you know, engine number one, I think, is the is the prime example there. And they took three out of the 12 board seats at Exxon despite owning 0.02% of the common stock. That is obviously, you know, let that sink in for a minute. So how does that happen? Well, it basically happens because you have a lot of, uh, of that stock held by passive investors that have to invest along with what the proxy voting services put forward. And the proxy voting services can now rely on these different think tanks, including the International Energy Agency, who says, look, if we want to go zero carbon, we can have no sanctioning of new oil and gas fields. I mean, that's a pretty... Uh, you know, bold statement, but what it allows the proxy voting services to do is vote in favor of slates of directors who, who are proposing that type of a plan and that type of a future. Whereas before, just, just to give, you know, your listeners and viewers a little bit of a, of a color, before these proxy voting services offered a special ESG package that you could either get the main, you know, voting guidelines or the special environmental voting guidelines. But now that the big think tanks are saying no new oil and gas sanctioned projects, now you can, you know, in the in the much larger sort of main core voting guidelines, you can have those types of directors come in. So, you know, that I think that's how that's how it happened. You know, 0.02%, three board seats. Exxon, by the way, not anymore, but was the largest company on earth uh, not too many years ago. And to think that you can, you know, have 25% of the board owning is such a such a marginal de minimis amount is I'm not sure what the legal definition of de minimis is, but 0.02% must be getting awfully close. So I want to segue along with your statement there. There's a lot of rhetoric in the news today about decarbonization. Legislature legislation is is trying to get pushed through uh, this large infrastructure bill, which includes long-term decarbonization plans and and reduction of, of carbon footprints. Etc. Could you maybe talk through the realities of that process and the feasibilities and maybe level set what that looks like for investors? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I, I think whether, you know, you're seeing what's happening in the United States, Europe, by the way, is, is much farther along the path there. I actually just got off the call with the European investor and we talked about nothing but ESG. And the big talk there is what they're calling this taxonomy, which is that you know, all the powers that be in Europe are coming together and they're uh, by diktat defining what is green and what isn't green. And uh, as you might imagine, um, 
that's not 100% clear cut in every case, right? You know, does natural gas that replaces coal, is that green? Uh, is nuclear power green? You know, I would argue that it most certainly is, it generates no carbon. And if what we're worried about is carbon emissions, you should be pushing a nuclear future, but it's obviously controversial in certain areas. And yeah, so, I, wanna get, I wanna get to that later, but I wanna hear the answer first. So. <laughs> okay. Um, so, you know, the short answer is, if you look at the traditional path that people are taking right now, to reducing carbon. And by the way, I, I think that we should be reducing carbon. Um, you know, so I, I'm not, uh, I, I think that, I think that there's some interesting debates going on about some of the impacts of carbon uh, emissions and, and climate change and feedback loops and stuff like that. But to a certain extent, you know, I, I think this could, could be a little bit navel gazing. I think that as a planet, particularly given how much energy we're going to need from these emerging markets over the next 10 and 20 years, we should be looking to decarbonize. Now, the question is, how do you do that? Uh, if you look at coal, Okay, coal has a very interesting property and a very uh, severe drawback. The interesting property is that for one unit of energy that you put into the coal ecosystem, meaning mining coal, processing coal, building a coal-fired power plant, dispatching electricity, if you put one unit of energy and you get 30 units of energy out, that's really good. You know, that, that is harvesting energy on a scale that up until coal, we really weren't able to do. You know, we had water wheels before that, we had animal power, but you weren't able to harness net energy surpluses in the same way. And to put it in perspective, you know, somebody recently wrote, and I thought it was kind of an interesting way of thinking about it, that, um, you know, the average person consumes about 2000 calories. You figure that if that person is, you know, working in, in hard labor, maybe that's what, four or 5,000 calories, something like that. You know, today the average person consumes 900 times that amount. So it's as though we have 900 people all working, you know, extensive field hours uh, at our disposal, and we're consuming all of the product of the energy that comes off of that. And you know, how do you how, how is that possible? Well, the way it's possible is that we've been able to tap into energy stores where for every unit you put in, you get 30 units out the other side. And so now all of a sudden you can create surplus energy. And you know, for those physically not creating surplus energy, but you are converting surplus energy, harnessing surplus energy. Um, that creates, that's created the world that we live in today, yeah, but it emits a lot of carbon. And so the question is, you know, what do you do from there? So natural gas doesn't convert at 30 to one, it converts at like 27 to one, but it emits half the CO2. I think that's a pretty good trade-off. And I think that's why you've seen widespread adoption of natural gas around the world and in the United States. Obviously there's been economic reasons, gas has been cheap here, but I think there's also an appetite for it because you know, and to put it in perspective, based on what the United States has done promoting natural gas, when I say promoting, the free market has promoted natural gas. We have reduced our CO2 per capita by as much as uh, Norway, where electric vehicle sales are up to 45% of all vehicles sold, and as much as Germany, where their renewable footprint has gone up to 45% of all the power. We've done none of that. We just got rid of some coal, replaced it with gas, and we've impacted our CO2 by the same amount. So I think that that's really, really powerful. Uh, I think that uranium and nuclear power is extremely powerful because 30 to one for coal, 27-ish to one for natural gas, you save half the carbon. You move to nuclear power, uh, it's 100 to one, and there's no CO2 generated at source, right? There's in the cement and the foundation that you're laying and stuff like that, but nothing in the actual electricity production. So that to me is a no brainer, but there's obviously a lot of concerns both about waste and about um, safety. Now the safety numbers and the waste numbers, I think any rational person that looks through them, uh, it's, it's, they're, they're, it's a very, 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 very safe technology. Uh, the numbers bear that out. 
but there's obviously a, a, um, a visceral reaction to that. Uh, and then you look at renewables and renewables operate at best 25% of the time. They have a life that's anywhere between 10 to 20 years. The nameplate is about 20 years. However, every time we write about renewables, people write us in all the time and say, I work in the industry, nothing hits 20 years. You're talking about 10 years, maybe getting to 15 in certain technologies. Uh, and they don't operate a lot of the time because the wind's not blowing and the sun's not shining. So if you want to make up for that, you need to build out redundancy. You need to build out four times as much to kind of generate the same amount of power. But I should point out that's still not really enough because yes, you're generating then the same amount of aggregate power, but it's not uniformly dispatched. And so we like to, you know, we're accustomed to turning on light switches and seeing uh, the power come on. Uh, and so you need a, a buffer in the form of a battery. And so if you use lithium ion, which is what most people are advocating for today, uh, that's incredibly energy intensive to produce. So when you put the whole thing together, you build out the redundancy, you have the batteries to back everything up, you're talking about potentially as low as four to one. And in some cases, if you get really you know, dramatic with the numbers, you can get it less, to, less than one to one. Uh, and so if you flip those numbers, and I'm sorry, I'm getting a bit, bit you know, mathematical here, but if you flip those numbers, that means that, you know, 30 to one means that 3% of the energy in generating coal gets consumed in the process. 100 to one means 1% of the energy and flip it, gets consumed in nuclear. And four to one means 25 to 30% of the energy gets consumed in renewables. And so that's why, you know, you're on this treadmill and, and it becomes very, very, very difficult to meet some of your targets, particularly your CO2 reduction targets uh, when you go down that path. And so what does it mean? Uh, I don't know. I mean, I think it means that some frank discussions have to be had. I think it means that people have to really start to understand these limitations. You look at a country like France that has adopted nuclear power and 75% of its power comes from nuclear. It has by far the lowest CO2 in the world. If everyone were like France, we wouldn't really have a CO2 problem. Um, you know, so there's steps that we can take. Uh, and then the last thing I'd like to say just on the topic is, you know, electric vehicles are the other sort of, you know, big, big point here. And, and Electric vehicles are really tough for a variety of reasons. First of all, if you look at electric vehicles and you power them with coal, you might as well just be driving gasoline powered cars. If you're gonna power them with renewables, then you have the point that I made earlier, which is that it's very energy intensive to create the power in the first place. And then you have this massive battery that sits in the electric vehicle itself, which creates a huge amount of energy cost. Uh, you know, making lithium ion is a very energy intensive process. And what do you gain for all that? Well, total human transportation, which includes planes, which cannot be electrified uh, because the batteries today are too uh, heavy. You know, if, you, if you put an inter or transcontinental plane full of the batteries, it can't take off. Um, so that's, that's obviously a problem. You could do it if it was tethered, I suppose, but you know, that's not gonna work. So, you know, all of planes, all of trains, all of cars, emits 9% of global CO2. Now, at best, using even the industry's rosiest projections, an electric vehicle is 30% less CO2 emitted over its life cycle than an internal combustion engine. I actually think they're pretty equal. And so our research points to sort of no net savings, but take, take the industry at their word, 30%. So 30% of 9%, once you replace every car on the road, uh, you're talking about, you know, three, at best, 3% reduction in global CO2. Steel, by the way, is 9% of global CO2. Uh, cement is 
So, you know, and, and that's, if you can crack the code on those, which a lot of people are doing some great work on carbon-free steel, um, you could have more of an impact than Tesla and every lithium ion battery company and every uh, other electric vehicle manufacturer combined. Um, so I, it's, just, it's just, to me, it's an odd place to start. And so this begs the question, is ESG investing as it stands today, real or just marketing? I think it's largely marketing, unfortunately, which is, I think, why you're starting to see such a pushback on some of this greenwashing. You know, we've seen instances where uh, ESG funds have like a 97% overlap in the holdings with their, with the spider, but they charge fees that are much higher. I think ESG in some areas maybe has, you know, uh, decent intentions, but, you know, the road to hell is paved with decent intentions. And I think ultimately what ESG is creating for the average retail investor who's not, you know, part of a part of a uh, endowment fund, who's not, you know, part of a subject to rules being pushed down from investment committees, is that it's creating an investment opportunity, as far as I see it, and, and that's what we try to tell, you know, some of our clients who who can be uh, more nimble and not be not not be sort of attached to um, you know, big policies that that get set from from sort of higher powers. Uh, is that you know you're, you have forced sellers here um, in an area that we think fundamentally still has a lot of legs. Uh, you, that's creating a lot of um, irrational investing behavior. And if you don't, if you're in a position to not be subject to that, I think that that's creating a really good opportunity. We wrote a paper a couple quarters ago called "Investing in the Uninvestable," and you know we love it when assets are called uninvestable, and that tends to make them very, very good. Uh, investments. Obviously, nothing is guaranteed. And, and, you know, certainly in the commodity markets, they can be very, very volatile. But we like to be involved in things where everyone else is running for the doors. And, and ESG, I think more than anything else, has created an environment where you have forced sellers, and that's creating an investment opportunity. And you alluded to this earlier when you referenced silver and copper, and, and obviously the, the story of oil over the last 12, 15 months, 10 years. Are we entering into a commodity super cycle? I think that we're certainly entering into a new stage in the commodity cycle, and it's going to be a very strong bull market. I mean, a super cycle, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sometimes uh, reluctant to use those terms, but I guess yes. I think the answer is yes. And the reason I say that is, you know, we've looked back and we've looked at the price of commodities divided by the price of the stock market going back 120 years. We went back to 1900. And um, you know, one of the things that we like to do here is we like to be sort of students of history. And we first saw the chart where somebody had looked at the Goldman Sachs Commodity Index, which is a broad index of commodity prices, versus the Dow. And it went back to 1970. And I think they're like, wow, like, look at this. This chart goes back to 1970. So 1970, that's like two cycles. That, that, that shows one bull market and one bear market or two bear markets in the bull market. You know, we want to go back farther than that. And so we took it all the way back to 1900. The reason that, that other people hadn't was that the Goldman Sachs Commodity Index itself doesn't go back earlier than 1970. But we said, look, the commodity prices do. Can we try to recreate our own commodity index? And you know, ideally, we'd make it similar to the Goldman Sachs and methodology, and hopefully it lines up and stuff like that. And it did. So we went all the way back to 1900. And what we see is that at different periods, uh, 1929, 1969, 1999, and today, commodity prices become extremely dislocated relative to financial assets. And they were all very, very good times to be commodity investors. And they were good times both relatively and absolutely. 
Um, you know, 29 is probably the shocker because I was right at the verge of the Great Depression. Uh, and gold obviously did really well. You know, the United States uh, re-rated the dollar relative to gold, 29 to 35. So gold stocks did very well and everything else fell precipitously. But actually a decade on, oil and oil stocks were up, which I don't think people sort of think about during, you know, a period like the depression, but, but they were by the end of the 30s. And Certainly, the 60s, you know, gave way. 1969 gave way to the 70s with with its inflation, stagflation, and great decade for commodities. And then in 1999, prices got as low uh, relative to financial assets again. And, and again, there you entered your super cycle from 1999 to 2011. We've surpassed all those levels now. We are cheaper than we have ever been. And and I don't think you know it's not it's not magic. It's not uh, random. What it does is when stock prices do really well and real asset prices do really badly. It starves the industry for capital and it's a, effectively a depletion-based supply business. And so if you starve the industry for capital at a certain point, the existing infrastructure and mines and oil fields start to show their age and they're not being replaced by anything. And that tends to tighten the market very, very quickly, right? As everyone's looking in the other direction. And I think that's what's happening now. So, you know, a super cycle, uh, definitely possible, um, you know, a, a bull market, I, I think almost certainly. And so along those lines, what are your best ideas right now? Where do you see the biggest opportunity to invest? So we see today the biggest opportunity in oil and gas related equities. You know, they've just become so dislocated. COVID dislocated them extremely. Uh, ESG is keeping them uh, from recovering. They've been strong performers. But when you look at, you know, if you if you price in a $80 mid-cycle price, which I think, by the way, now our mid-cycle price is at ratcheted even higher because of some of the investor activism that we talked about before. That's going to have an impact on supply big time. But if you look at all these different things, you know, I think that these stocks are trading at ridiculously low valuations. If you look at energy weighting in the S&P, it's averaged 10%. Uh, it got as high as 30% in the bull market. It got as low as 1.8. Today, we're at 2.8. So, you know, up a little bit, you know, basically doubled right off that bottom. Uh, or just shy of doubled off that bottom, but uh, still has a long way to go just to get average, let alone, you know, things don't typically go from radically undervalued to average. They tend to go from radically undervalued to radically overvalued. So I think that oil and gas represents still, even after this run, uh, the most dramatic opportunity we've seen probably in our investment lifetime. Uh, we like natural gas as well as oil. Uh, natural gas suffered a lot of the same problems that oil, you know, new supply coming online. In this case, it was the Marcellus, not the Permian. And similar to the oil side of things, the Marcellus started to sort of give way just before COVID. And then COVID uh, meant that we're not drilling enough wells. Demand for US gas is through the roof. We're exporting it via liquefied natural gas to the rest of the world. It's at all-time record high prices. Uh, that has to do with some secular themes, such as you know increased energy intensity in the emerging markets. But also, you know, exacerbated by you know low rainfall in certain areas means less hydro, and so they have to make that up with liquefied natural gas. So the gas market looks really rosy. Stocks there really bombed out and cheap, and so we own about half of our energy exposure is in oil at this point, and half is in natural gas. And then outside of natural gas or outside of oil and gas energy, we like uh, uranium, copper, and agricultural securities, and we have about you know anywhere between 10 and 15 percent of the portfolio in each of those. And then we have a little sort of tag end position in gold. Uh, we're long-term very bullish on gold. I think that gold's gonna have a very strong decade ahead. Uh, however, relative to some of the other commodities, gold seems a little expensive. We see some headwinds in the near term, 
some central banks that have been big buyers have stopped because you know the financials aren't quite what they were before and so they don't have a lot of money to put to gold buying in some cases we even saw some gold selling and the western investor who's much much uh, less price sensitive than the eastern investor uh, is selling and and that's never really kind of a good thing you know western eastern investors are have gold buying uh, as part of their cultural heritage going back hundreds and hundreds of years. And so they tend to be very price sensitive when they get good deals, they, they are able to kind of step in and take advantage and they become very reluctant if, if prices run. On the flip side, the Western investors, not quite a Bitcoin GameStop investor, but you know, they don't really care about prices. They, they like gold because you know gold is turned on, everything is good to go for gold. And so you know, the price rallies. And I don't think most, most Western buyers don't look and say, oh, well, it's up you know, hundred bucks. And so maybe I'll pull back here. They say it's up hundred bucks. I need to own it. I need to own it. I need to own it. So the same thing works on the selling side, you know, Western uh, flows or, or physical flows coming out of the various investment products are all, are all outflows. So I think that that's a little bit of a near term headwind as well. And, and what are some sectors that you're staying away from that you're bearish on? Well, look, I think, you know, if you look at all the different commodity sectors uh, that we that are out there and the ones that we don't own, I think you can infer that, you know, we're either neutral or bearish on them. So we don't tend to really comment on what we're super bearish on, but we don't have any investments right now in lithium. We don't have any investments in uh, steel. Steel's been a big mistake. Steel and iron ore have been big mistakes for us. Uh, but our modeling going back five or six years ago, you know, we did similar models to for copper and for iron ore steel. And, and for your listeners, you know, iron ore plus met coal gets you steel, basically. And we looked at how much installed steel and copper was in an economy around the world and at different points in time. So total installed copper and total installed steel, not necessarily yearly demand for each of them, but the total amount that had been installed uh, over time relative to the wealth of that country. And there was a very clear relationship. And we said, okay, you know, if China continues on its growth trajectories in terms of GDP, what does that mean for both? And for copper, it suggested that it had a lot of room to grow, you know, in order to get to a middle income, lower middle income country, uh, the amount of copper installed in China had to grow dramatically. In India, it was woefully under uh, invested in, in copper. And so we said, look, copper is this very strong demand profile. And in steel, it said kind of the opposite. It said, you know, China's basically running uh, an economy with enough steel to kind of be a middle-income country already. So we don't see this huge demand driver for steel. And that was wrong. You know, in retrospect, steel, since we made that prediction probably seven years ago, uh, steel demand in China has gone up like 30%. Uh, so that, that that was wrong. And so the question with, with is now kind of why? Uh, are they over-consuming? Are they stockpiling? A really interesting research project that we're going to potentially try to do um, is, you know, is there sort of a military industrial buildup that's, that's consuming a lot of steel? And there's a recent article in the Wall Street Journal that suggested that there is, and they quantified some of the investments that were being made, not in steel terms, but, you know, miles of tunnels and things like that. And so we're going to try to put some numbers around that and see, could that explain what's going on? But we've, we've stayed away from iron ore and steel because of that. And that's kind of been the wrong call. I'm trying to think what else. We don't have any rare earth investments right now, although we have had them in the past. Uh, we don't have any shipping investments right now that we have had in the past. And I wouldn't say in either rare earth or, or shipping, I, I wouldn't say that I'm bearish on, on either of those, but we just don't hold any investments there. And do you consider cryptocurrency a commodity? No, I think that, you know, the problem to me with cryptocurrency uh, is that ultimately um, 
again, sort of getting back to, you know, the metrics we use for electric vehicles and renewable energy, you have a task that you need to do. How much energy does it take to do that task? Because to me, energy uh, is sort of the lifeblood of the economy, right? We, we all use energy to fuel ourselves and to fuel all the things around us. And so, you know, how we live and where we live and what we do and how we behave all can be reduced. Maybe not the most interesting way to think about the world, but I find it interesting. It can all be reduced to kind of like an energy count. And so you know, there's some authors out there like this one guy uh, up at University of Manitoba, his name is Vaclav Smil, Professor Smil. And he writes that basically, you know, the economy is an interchange of energy. That's all we're doing is changing energy from one form into the other. And currency and all these things are just basically like a proxy for that process. And so you say, okay, well, that's kind of interesting, you know, is the process, and by the way, you know, technologies that are less energy efficient tend to fall by the wayside. And a great example is the Concorde. Concorde is far superior to the Boeing 747. I mean, in any way that you cut it, it was a better product, except uh, it requires about you know, three to four times as much jet fuel per passenger as the 747 did. So that that didn't pass muster. You know, even though it was, it was, apart from that, it was a better product. I mean, it, it cut the travel time across the Atlantic in half, uh, but you know, far worse energetics. So cryptocurrency is really bad energetics. You know, it's much worse uh, then, you know, it's, it's worse than gold mining. So if you, if, if what you want to do is store an asset outside of the financial system, it's not the most efficient way to do that. If you want to transact, it's definitely not the most efficient way to do that. Uh, and so I think that ultimately, you know, how can we justify at this point, if cryptocurrency were a country, it'd be like the 20th largest country in energy consumption. Uh, I don't know how we can justify that going forward. And, and the problem is, and, and you know, to, to borrow a phrase from like the technology people, it's a feature, not a bug. As we hit that asymptote of the total number of, uh, of coins that are issued, that means that by default, uh, if the transactions are, are where they are or growing, which obviously, you know, if you're an advocate of crypto, you think that transactions are going to grow, it's going to proliferate. And the amount of coins on issue are plateauing. That means that the hash sizes and the amount of computing power to add a block has to grow, you know, exponentially, you know, the, the inverse of asymptotically, which would be exponentially. So the amount of energy is, is going to go off the charts. So like, does it really make sense as a society to be consuming more energy for than any other single thing, which is where we're going to go if we follow this to its logical conclusion in for, for cryptocurrency? Um, and I don't, I don't know that it, that it does. So. Well, Adam, we're bumping up against time, but this has been Awesome. We'll have to do another session to, we didn't even get to inflation, which is like one of the things <laughs> I really wanted to get to you with. But if people listening are interested in connecting with you, getting on the distribution list for your content and materials, what's the best way for them to do that? Yeah, please look us up uh, on our website. It's gorozen, G-O-R-O-Z-E-N.com. Um, we have all of our materials on there. Uh, Gehring and Rosenzweig, we're on Twitter uh, and LinkedIn. Uh, but all that content usually just links back to us on the website. So if you go to the website, you can sign up for our newsletters or blogs, anything like that. Awesome. Adam, thanks so much for carving out some time on a Friday. I appreciate it. And uh, keep that great content coming. It's it's very useful for, for folks like me. So thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Have a wonderful weekend. All right. Take care. Thank you for joining the conversation on Colloquium. This episode is brought to you by Excelsior Capital, an investment platform focused on democratizing private equity by providing individuals access to direct opportunities. To learn more about the firm, please visit excelsiorgp.com and connect with Brian on LinkedIn.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.